with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. Our text actually this morning is verses 5 to the end of the chapter, 5 to 18. Um, we looked at the first four verses last week. We'll read them again today, but our text actually begins with verse 5. Genesis 13. Throughout the Bible, we are taught on numerous occasions, numerous ways, that God's people are to walk by faith, not by sight. Walk by faith, not by sight. But what on earth does that mean? As we look around, we have to admit that, frankly, Christians don't live that much differently than a lot of other people. The Bible may speak of a stark contrast between Christians and the world, but it's not as obvious as we might think when we actually look at what's going on. So what is this? Are we doing it? What is it to walk by faith? How's that different than walking by sight? Well, that's the theme of this chapter. It doesn't say everything that we could possibly say on the subject. The Bible has much to say on that subject. But this is what we're about to see lived out here in the life of Abram, walking by faith, not sight. One writer begins his study saying, quote, hardly any other chapter in the Bible describes faith so marvelously. Well, may God grant us understanding. May God teach us this morning something of what it means to walk by faith, not sight. Well, let's read it. We'll read the whole chapter, chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. 
All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Just to recap the story here, Abram, uh, as he returns from his misadventure in Egypt, returns a very wealthy man. And apparently his nephew Lot had acquired substantial wealth as well. And so they find themselves um, living in, a, in, a, in an area of Canaan that can't support the two of them. Verse Seven points out that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also in the land. And that detail probably is given to us to explain why this wonderful land of promise that Abram had been, had been promised by the Lord was unable to support even two families. Because the locals had taken the best parts of the land. And, and these strangers and aliens, these sojourners who were traveling through Abraham and his entourage, and including nephew Lot and his entourage, well, they were trying to eke a living out of the most desolate, hilly, rocky places in the land. But the inability of the land to support both the flocks of Abraham and of Lot led to inevitable tensions, not between Abram and nephew Lot, but between the herdsmen. So Abram, not willing to have this escalate into strife between he and his nephew, addressed the problem. He says, we need to separate. We need to go in different directions. It's a big land. Let's live separately. And in a gracious act of kindness, Abraham said, Lot, you pick. You have your choice. If you go here, I'll go there. If you go there, I'll go here. You take the land you want, I'll take what's left. And so Lot chose the fertile plain of Jordan while Abram was left to live in the hills of Canaan. But after that was all over, God renewed his promises to Abram concerning the land that he was going to give him. Now that's the story. That's what we have in this chapter. But what's the point? What are we supposed to learn from this incident? as I said, I think we ought to learn this one great truth, that we walk by faith, not sight. That's the theme of this whole study this morning. But I think that there are two parts to this truth, a negative part and a positive part, what that does not mean, what that does mean. And those will be our first two points here. First, the negative. What, what not to do. And this is illustrated through the experience of Lot. That's our first truth in this theme. You cannot trust the eyes of your flesh. Walking by faith means that you cannot trust the eyes of your flesh. We've become quite the visual generation. Have we watched television? We uh, go to movies. We want to see. We don't read the newspaper so much. We, we, we 
want to see the events happen. We want to see the news footage. We don't want to just read a description of a product. We, we, we want to see it. We want to see a picture of it. We've come to trust our eyes more than just about any input into our minds. But here, specifically in the experience of Lot, we learn that we can't trust our eyes. For the use of our eyes is not just a matter of seeing, of, 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 the, of the retina sensing the light and, and, and sending the, the impulses through the optic nerve to our brain to interpret that. It's not just that. Our eyes are also one of the chief instruments of our flesh, our sinful flesh. And so we must learn, if we are to walk by faith, that we cannot trust the eyes of our flesh. Think of the experience of Lot. Here's where we learn this. On the one hand, Lot's decision was exactly what we might expect. Probably exactly what many of us would have done. He's given two alternatives. He's given a choice. He looks at the options, and he sees that one is better for himself than the other. And so, he seizes the opportunity before him. There's no evidence that Lot intentionally was trying to do something wicked here. He simply took the best opportunity that was given him. Joyce Baldwin describes it this way. Lot took full advantage of this option and predictably chose the most fertile land in sight. He was attracted by the promise of prosperous farming and the approved standard of living he and his family would enjoy in the subtropical fertility of the Jordan Valley. Where rivers or springs create oases, the growth of vegetation, including trees and luscious fruits, contrasted with the barrenness of the hills all around. Lot had visions of the good life, as he had witnessed in Egypt, with all the latest in artistic and technological development, and time and leisure to enjoy it. He would be a fool to miss the opportunity of self-advancement and assured prosperity. Wouldn't we have done the same thing? Well, what could be wrong with that? Take the best you can get. Enjoy it. Well, let's think about what was wrong with Lot's decision. Actually, there are several things. First of all, Lot's decision was wrong, for it was based solely on his desire for prosperity. That's all that was driving it. Verse 10 says that Lot looked up and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered, had the cities, but clearly he wasn't just seeing with his eyes. Abraham saw with his eyes. Clearly, Lot was seeing with his desires. Seeing with the eyes of his flesh. He saw that it was more desirable to make him wealthy. He saw that it was more comfortable, less work. He saw that it was more prestigious, a more prestigious address. And he wanted what he saw for himself. He saw it not only with his eyes, but he saw it with the eyes of his desires. And apparently, this was his only concern. 
This is how he made the decision. I see it. I desire it. I go for it. Secondly, Lot's decision was wrong for it failed to honor Abram. We easily say first come, first serve, but hey, Abraham was first. It was Abram who was called by God. It was Abram who was promised this land. It was Abram who had responded in faith and packed up and gone and graciously taken nephew Lot with him. Abram had every right to pull rank on Lot and say, the promises are mine, buddy. I'll take what I need, and you can make it somewhere else. After all, Abram was Lot's uncle. He was his senior. He was his elder. Lot owed Abram lots. He certainly owed him honor and respect. Yet Lot seems to have thought nothing of taking when offered what he knew rightly belonged to Abram, not to him. For you see, he only saw the situation with the eyes of his flesh. Third thing that was wrong with Lot's decision was faulty because it ignored the moral issues. It ignored the wickedness. There's a telling statement in verse 10. There we read that Lot saw the plain, etc., was like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt. This fertile, beautiful plain was like the garden of God. It was like the land of Egypt. Wait a minute. The garden of God is nothing like the land of Eden uh, of Egypt. Eden is nothing like the world. That kind of comparison can only be made when one completely fails to distinguish between God's paradise and, and, and man's good times. Surely, this is seen only with the eyes of the flesh. I wonder if there's any question about Lot's failure to address the moral issues. Look at verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Very strong grammar here, the strongest kind of grammar for the greatest kind of sin that's being des uh, uh, described. You see, Sodom already, already, not later, already had quite a reputation for its wickedness. And where do we find Lot? Verse 12 says he pitched his tent Near Sodom. None of it seemed to phase Lot, you see. Great city of opportunity. Beautiful place. The moral issues, not thinking about those. The danger of wickedness, not thinking about that. Pitch my tent where it's convenient, where the prosperity is. Lot toyed with wickedness. And this pattern only got worse. For in the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 12, we find the next reference to Lot, and now we find he's living in Sodom. 
took down his tent, bought a house, I guess, a little closer. Not just close by, but it, part of it now. And actually, if we look forward a little bit more to chapter 19, verse 1, we find that Lot is sitting in the gateway of the city. That's the ancient way of saying he's serving on the city council of Sodom. Deeper and deeper into what he knows is, is, is the, a bastion of wickedness that grieves the Lord. What's wrong with Lot's decision? He fails to distinguish good from evil. He sees only with the eyes of his flesh. And so eventually, you know the story, Lot lost everything when God destroyed Sodom. He lost all of his wealth. He was a man of great wealth going into the, the plain of Jordan. He came out with the shirt on his back. He lost his wife, for her heart was too committed to Sodom after a few years there. He lost his daughter's chosen husbands, couldn't convince them to come along, drug his daughters out of town. He had not been able in all of his years of Sodom to influence even one other person to follow the Lord, not even his own family. For you see, Lot made his decision trusting in the eyes of his flesh, not the Lord. No wonder John Calvin writes, let us then learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted, but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unawares with many evils, just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Brothers and sisters, I doubt that there is ever been a day of greater seduction through the eyes of sinful flesh than what we experience in our day. No one in this room is immune to this. This is life where we live. Materialism, wealth, sexual promiscuity, idolatry, greed, they all seize you through your sinful looking longingly just like Lot. And the whole world takes it for granted. This is just how life is. We lust our way through magazines. Magazines, I'm not talking smut magazines, all magazines, carefully designed to grab us with alluring images. We drool over catalogs as products are portrayed as if they could satisfy our soul. We covet our way through the shopping mall. We almost drool with envy as we watch the wicked prosper. 
we see, we want. After a while, we demand and we sell our souls for a lot less than a fertile plain. But don't you see what the world takes for granted? The way everyone lives is exactly the opposite of walking by faith, not sight. I tell you plainly, you cannot trust the eyes of your flesh. Don't even try. Our second point points us back in a more positive direction as to what it does mean then, what is involved in walking by faith. And we have what I think is maybe a, a bit of a surprising uh, uh, description. Second point is this. The meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. Well, there are a few statements in the Bible so vulnerable to ridicule by the world as this one. This familiar statement of Jesus, the meek will inherit the earth. Everybody knows that's not true. <laughs> the race goes to the swift. The battle goes to the strong. And the meek, they are trampled in the dust by the successful. We all know that. Well, yes, it appears that way. That's why it's such a radical thing to say walk by faith, not sight. For it appears to be a losing proposition. But our sovereign Lord still says, in spite of what you think you see, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. And that's what we see portrayed here in the experience of Abram. Consider the meekness of Abraham, Abram for a moment. Abram is a humble man. I think we find him meek when we come into this chapter. His moral failure in Egypt has left him humiliated. He has retraced his steps. He is back to the altar, to the place of worship. He is back to calling upon the name of the Lord. Here is a humble man. Here is a meek man. And when the quarreling starts, it's out of that context that Abram comes to address it and to take the initiative to resolve it. And he doesn't seek to win this quarrel. He only seeks to make peace in this quarrel. This is a meek man. And what's his plan for peace? How shall we make peace? He seeks it as his, at his own expense. Rather than pressing his rights and having a moment of confrontation saying, okay, Lot, it's time that we sit down and have a man-to-man -man talk about who is who here and who's got rank over who. That's not how he approaches it at all. Instead he says, Lot, you make the choice. I'll let you decide. This is a meek man. You see, Abraham learned something, I think. Learn something about walking by faith, not sight. Learn that his great plans and his great schemes and dreams to work everything out didn't work very well. 
So he come to be willing to rest himself and his possessions and his future rested in the Lord's hands. Ian Dugan says, because his eyes were firmly fixed on the promise of a heavenly inheritance, Abram could afford to renounce earthly desires. What I see doesn't matter to me that much, Lot. You decide. I rest on the promises of God. Abram is a picture of meekness. And remember, the meek will inherit the earth. And in fact, that's exactly what we see. For the minute that the, that the lot is gone, beginning in verse 14, the Lord begins to renew his promises to Abraham. And what are his promises? Lift up your eyes and look, Abraham. Get up here on top of this hill where you can see everything. I want you to look. Look down there to the south. Look up here to the north. Look over to the east. Look to the west. Everything you see, Abraham, I'm going to give it to you. The meek will inherit the earth. In fact, I'm going to make your offspring big enough to fill this whole land. I'm going to make them so numerous that they'll be like the specks of dust of all the land that you see. They will inherit all this, Abraham. I give it to you. The meek will inherit the earth. Now, Abraham didn't have it all yet. In fact, the truth is, at this moment, he didn't own one piece of it. In fact, throughout his whole life, he never owned one piece of it, except for a burial plot for his wife that he bought. That's all. But in verse 17, we have this most wonderful thing. God tells him, I want you to get up and I want you to just walk through this land. I want you to just walk through the, the length and the breadth of this land. I would just enjoy this land and see it all. And understand, this is your inheritance. This I'm going to give you. Now, you don't have it all yet, but it's certain, for the meek will inherit the earth. Hebrews 11 describes Abram's walk of faith. It's such a great passage. By faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents along with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. So they waited. In faith they waited when they didn't own a thing, they waited and trusted God, confident of his promises, confident that his promise would come true, that the meek would inherit the earth just like God said. Folks, just as well as we might think of Abraham, and as great as he might be, the truth is we also know his failings and his weaknesses, 
we're just resting ourselves in the notion that, well, Abraham did pretty good. He tried to be meek, and he tried to trust God, and we're going to do pretty good, and we're going to try to be meek and trust God too. If that's our hope, we're kind of resting on quicksand because Abraham wasn't meek enough, and he didn't trust God enough, and neither are we. We're filled with pride, and we're filled with self, and we're not filled with meekness and humility very much. And it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Oh, but when we look at Abraham, we can't help but look forward. And to see that the story of Abraham is not just about Abraham. The story of Abraham is about Abraham's great son who was to come. That's the Lord Jesus. In fact, when Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament, when Matthew begins his gospel, he starts with the Abram, and he traces the genealogy from Abram to Jesus. Make no mistake, what was promised to Abraham is to be fulfilled in Jesus, Matthew wants us to know in the very first chapter. And sure enough, in Jesus we see the perfection and the fulfillment of what is just foreshadowed uh, here in, in little bits and pieces in a rough sketch in Abraham. We see the fullness in Jesus for Jesus on another day on another hilltop in Canaan, perhaps not far from this place. Jesus has shown all the kingdoms of the world. All this I will give you, the tempter says. If you would just bow and worship me. Oh, what a sweet deal. What a sweet deal. All the kingdoms of the world, absolute rule, the monarch of the whole earth, with no cross, with no suffering, with no heartache, I'll give it all to you, the tempter says. Just bow your knee and recognize my right to give it to you. <laughs> but the meek one, son of Abram, was not a weak one. Away from me, Satan, Jesus commanded. For this is the Son of God come in human flesh. This was, was the one who was a, 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 the master of, weak, of meekness. He's the one who had already left heaven, left the glory that was rightfully his own at the Father's side for the sake of sinners like us. He's the one who came and now allows himself to be humiliated, humiliated throughout his life and humiliated all the way to being crucified like a common criminal on the cross. And why did he do all of that? Confident of the Father's promise that he would give him the nations of the world as his inheritance. Promises found in Psalm 2. Jesus knew that the meek inherit the earth, and that applied to him. And so he left the Father's glory and he came and humbled himself on earth and was obedient to cross no shortcuts no caving into the desires of his eyes meekly trusting and obeying on the promise of the father that he would give him everything and the father did but when Jesus was crucified, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. He is now at the Father's right hand, clothed in glory and majesty. And everything has been given into his hands. 
under his rule. He is the glorified, sovereign Lord. Oh, folks, this is our hope of salvation. Not that we could possibly be like Abraham and be meek enough and be faithful enough to somehow merit God's favor, but that Jesus has become perfect meekness and God has given him the earth and that he died for us to bring us with him into glory. I tell you this morning, we don't see it all now. We don't see the whole earth bowing in, uh, humbly at Jesus' feet, but we will. God promises. It is absolutely certain. Those who in faith have trusted him, even when it seems impossible, they, we, will inherit all this with him. This morning I call you to meekly bow your proud and stubborn heart before the Lord Jesus, the greater son of Abram, and to trust his promises, and to trust in the fact that his work is enough to grant you all the inheritance that you could ever want. For God doesn't lie. The meek will inherit the earth. Oh, this is a familiar story to many of us, but do, do we ever get the point? It's not just a story about Abram. This is a story to point us to Jesus. And then when we know him, this is a story which also still tells us then how we should act as his people. Well, we should do what he did. We should walk in the meekness that he walked in. That's Paul's point in Philippians chapter 2. There he makes this wonderful connection between the meekness of Christ and the meekness of Christ's people. You may recall this great profession of faith that we find in, uh, in uh, Philippians 2 about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Great confession, great rehearsal of the meekness and humiliation and glory of Jesus. Why does Paul say that? Certainly to turn our faith to Jesus. Certainly to know that this is our hope. But if you look at the context, he writes that as his support for an exhortation he just gave about what we should do. Listen to his exhortation. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, and then comes this great confession, who did not cling to the Father's glory, but made himself nothing. In other words, this gospel of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation is not only how we're saved, this gospel is how we're to live. This is how we're to walk in faith. Not seeing things through the eyes of our desires like everyone else, 
not always concerned to advance ourselves, but trusting Christ, trusting him for salvation, trusting him for forgiveness, and trusting him for every day. Trusting him enough to walk in his kind of meekness, though it seems to be destructive to us, though it seems it will trample us underfoot, though it seems it will be certain failure. Because we know the meek inherit the earth. One of the other example of that is found in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. There the situation is a lot like the tension between Abram and Lot. The believers have not been able to resolve their conflict. Two brothers or sisters in the same church, perhaps. And they, they just can't get it worked out. They've got a difference of opinion over perhaps some property or we don't know what it was. Because they can't resolve it, they get madder and they get at odds with each other and finally one of them goes to court and sues the other. Apostle Paul writes and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Listen to what he says. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints, before the Christians? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have a dispute about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Instead, one brother goes to law against another and in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have completely been defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? You hear what he's saying? Same thing. Stop trusting how things look through the eyes of your flesh. Get your eyes off of your wealth and your advantage and your rights and your hurt and your offense. The meek will inherit the earth. Don't deny that by constantly trying to protect your petty little interest. Why, it would be better to just suffer the loss. Isn't that what Jesus did for you? Suffer the loss for the sake of your brother. Like Abraham. You see, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus did for us. And this is now the way he calls us to live. We walk by faith, not sight. It's the most basic premise of the Christian life. It's the point of this chapter. Our confidence, our expectation, our hope, our dreams are not to be focused on what we can see, for we do not trust the eyes of our flesh. Instead, we rest in faith on the promises of God. We don't see them all yet. We don't see that it's all happened. Some of them look downright impossible. For the sake of God's promise, we'll abandon anything. For the sake of God's promise, we'll allow ourselves to lose what's rightfully ours. 
For the sake of God's promise, we will willingly choose the path of meekness, not what seems to be greatness. For that meekness is the model of faithfulness set before us by our Savior. That meekness of Jesus which resulted in his glory after his humiliation. And that is nothing less than the gospel. And so in meekness resting on the promises of God, we walk like Abraham as strangers and pilgrims in the world, expecting nothing from the world and everything from the Lord. For according to his word, the meek will inherit the earth. Amen. Oh dear Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from the way that the world thinks around us, the way that we often think. We've picked it up like a, a disease. It's infected us and it's gone throughout our minds and our hearts. We find it in every nook and cranny of our thinking. This, this lust of the eyes, this trusting only what we can see and what seems to press our own advantage. Lord, deliver us from walking that way. Help us to understand your promise. Promise that seems impossible. But the promise which is the promise of the gospel. Grant us, Lord, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. To trust you. Be faithful. Knowing that your promise ultimately will prevail. Thank you for the example of Abram. Who didn't see near as much as we see and yet called to be faithful. Oh Lord, may we be like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.